uh, from Acts chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 10. So hear the word of the Lord. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Quite the story, right? I mean, I hear that and my, my first thought is, this belongs to some of my other favorite fantasy stories of Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, and Narnia. But did it actually happen, right? I mean, did the lame man really walk? Uh, this just belongs to some of those other stories. Maybe like Jonah, right? I tend to think that one. Maybe, maybe that's just a little bit more met to be a metaphor or something. But because I come from a family that values logic and science and reason. And in fact, I can, I can hear their voices now. Many of them are not, uh, do not believe in the God of the Bible and do not believe in Jesus. And it's because of stories like this. And I hear them saying to me, Jonathan, do you really believe that? And there's just a sense of disappointment right? Because it doesn't make sense. Lame people don't walk. Dead people don't rise from the dead. That's not the way the world works, right? Is that, that, is that some of your thoughts maybe in the audience? Some of you think that way? I know I've, I've thought that way. And, and, you know, there's maybe some of you here who say, you know, no, I, I, I do think this actually happened. I think it's an actual event. And there's other miracles in the Bible that are even harder to believe. So this one's, this one's not so hard. I can believe this one. And you're like, well, there were eyewitnesses there, so they would have refuted this if they could have, if it hadn't been true. So no, no, I'm, I'm okay. This was, this was a real miracle. And then you start to wonder, so why don't those miracles happen today? Or maybe then it gets personal. How come the miracles I've prayed for haven't happened, right? There's a lot here in this passage. There's a lot of emotion. There's a lot of questions being raised already. And the difficulty with this passage is it's not trying to give us a theology of miracles and how they work and how often they happen or why they happen. Rather, I'm going to argue this, this, this passage, this story is meant to communicate something completely different to us. But because of the questions that are raised, I think we have to at least try and answer some of those because that's where our mind goes, right? So we're going to talk about something with a different trajectory, but I hope to answer some of those questions as we go throughout this story. So if you're willing, would you begin with me in prayer, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Lord, I pray that uh, you would be at work here this morning, that you would be your words and not my own. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, in case you're new with us um, or you haven't been here the past couple weeks, we've started a series on the church. What is the church? And it's called The Beauty of Weakness. That's the sermon series. And we're discovering what the early church was like um, starting by studying the book of Acts. And we see that the church was gathered and centered upon this one person, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, died, and rose from the dead. And after that resurrection, people were excited. 
and he created this movement that could not be stopped, right? And as they're going about, and as they're at work, uh, Jesus leaves them with this impossible mission, this mission of the, for the church they cannot do on their own. And right after leaving them with this mission, he says, all right, guys, see ya, I'm out of here, and he leaves. And you're like, Jesus, seriously? Like, where'd you go? Well, how are we supposed to do this mission without you? That's Acts 1, and he says, no, I promise to send you a helper. In Acts 2, we discover that helper is the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit does amazing things, and there's created this awesome community, the community that the early church had. And maybe their temptation was to stay in that little nice community, but the mission of the church sends them out, and that's where we enter into Acts 3. As this early church is sent out, can they accomplish this mission that Jesus has given for them to accomplish? Because they can't do it on their own. So unless Jesus shows up through the Holy Spirit, unless that power is enough, this mission will fail. So that's where they're taking off. That's where this story has us. That's kind of the tension the text has given us. So I'd love to look at that story um, starting in Acts chapter 3. If you would look there with me, it's going to be on the screen. Or if you have a Bible, love to have you there. turn there with me. Acts chapter 3. Here's our, here's our story. Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. So it's Peter and John, two of the leaders of those disciples. They're going up to the temple. And we've got a picture up here of the temple. Um, up in the far right, you can see it says American football field. right? For little, so this, this temple is big, right? There's several football fields in there. And you have kind of the Gentiles, where Gentiles, those who are not Jews, were allowed. And it's kind of outside those walls. And in the far right, you have the beautiful gate, um, that's where we think this gentleman was sitting. And then inside you have the women's courtyard where they could come. And then going in even further, you have where the Jewish men were allowed. And then going even further, you have the Holy of Holies where like one priest was allowed once a year. So kind of have these marks of the, the temple there. And that beautiful gate's kind of the access going into the temple. It's very high traffic at three o'clock. That's when they're gathering for prayer. Everybody's going, it's rush hour. So this man, this paralytic, as we keep reading, in verse 2, is going there for a reason. It says, The lame man from, who was lame from birth was being carried, and they laid him daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. He's going at rush hour asking for alms because if you were crippled in that day, you could not earn a living. You needed to have a physical body to do physical work in order to receive compensation for it, right? So he's unable to provide for himself. So he's going when it's busy and asking for money so that he might be able to live. And Peter, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asks to receive alms. And I think we can, we can picture this. I mean, if you've driven around in Kansas City or somewhere else, you've probably had this experience of someone asking for money. You know, you drive up and they're there and they'll have their cup and say, you know, please give money and put it here or asking for money. That's similar to what this man is doing. He's saying, I, I need help. And he's asking for help. And Peter directed his gaze at him as did John and said, look at us. I love this. This isn't some derogatory command. Rather, this is giving this man dignity. Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. You can almost see it in the guy. He's like, oh, good, payday. It's coming. Thank you. And then Peter says to him, I have no silver and gold. What? Why are you talking to me, right? But what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. All right. Put yourself in that story for a minute. Maybe you're John, and you're sitting next to Peter, and you're like, hey, Peter, Peter what, are you, what are you doing? Right? Like, what are, what are, you, what are you saying? Or maybe, maybe you're the, the lame guy and you're like, seriously? I've heard this joke all my life. I can't walk. I'm lame. It, 
It's not funny. Or maybe you're the guys who are behind who are trying to like merge into the traffic and you're sitting there like, hey, what's the holdup on aisle four? Come on, guys. And well, some guy's making fun of the lame guy again. Really? That's not funny. Come on, let's go. I mean, maybe there's a holdup in the line. So they're trying to get into this temple gate and they're being blocked. Maybe I'm kind of adding a little bit here, but you know, you can kind of imagine some of this scenario. And you can see that the lame guy, he just, he doesn't even, he doesn't even try to get up right here. He's just like, seriously, what? What's going on? So Peter takes initiative, and I love this about Peter. Look what Peter does. It's like the lame guy, I told him to walk, he's not getting up. So Peter takes him by the right hand and raises him up. Right? Peter's like, hey, no, no, dude, I'm serious. Get up. And as he picks him up, the text says, immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And Luke is the author of this, and Luke was a doctor. He's actually using some medical terms here to describe what is taking place with being made strong. But we see that the lame man was healed immediately. And then leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. I mean, this isn't just like the guy who's never walked before. We find out later he's 40 years old, never walked before. He doesn't just get up. He starts like dunking a basketball, right? It says he's walking and leaping, praising God. And then as we saw that diagram of the temple, a cripple was not allowed into the temple And yet now we see that he entered into the temple, right? Now he has access, greater access, where they would have thought, to God. And then all the people saw him walking and praising God. I mean, they recognize him, all the people. Every day, three o'clock, they come in here. They see this same guy for 40 years. They know who he is. And their first thought is like, this guy's been faking it for 40 years. Oh, okay, maybe that's not their thought, right? They're sitting there going, how is he walking? This is impossible, And they recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And then verse 11, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them at the portico called Solomon's. Right, so you get this idea of this miracle has just happened and people say, how did this occur? Whatever, I got to know how this happened. And they gather together a little distance away, and Peter takes this opportunity to preach. And he says, I'm going to tell you what happened. I'm going to give you the reasons that this miracle occurred. And that sermon that Peter gives is the rest of the chapter, and that's what we're going to look at too. And Peter makes three points. And I think the three points that Peter makes for why this miracle occurred are the three points that I think we can take away as well. The first point that Peter makes is that the name of Jesus has power. The name of Jesus has power. Did you notice how Peter healed the man in the name of Jesus? There's a big emphasis there. And in case you didn't catch it, the people are like, how did this happen? And Peter goes on to say, it's not us. Obviously, we're just two guys. We don't have any power in ourselves. But the name of Jesus healed this man. Look at verse 16. I invite you to look there. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And that faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. You see, this was a miracle that actually in Luke chapter 5, Jesus had performed something very similar. Jesus had healed a lame man, and he did it by his own authority. And now a similar miracle is taking place, and it's in the authority of Jesus' name. And the point is for us to look at this and say, Jesus is still alive and at work and has power to bring about the mission of the church. Just because Jesus isn't physically there, his name represents him. Like that power is here. 
And then one of the things I love is this just isn't any old power. This is resurrection power. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead. That word for resurrection, it's a verb, it is used multiple times throughout this passage, trying to drive home that point. The resurrection power. The resurrection is occurring. Look at verse 3, verse 1. I'm going to read a couple of them for you. They all have that same verb for resurrection. He went up to the temple. Went up, that's that resurrection verb. 3.6, in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. 3.7, he took him by the right hand and raised him up. 3.15, the, who God raised up from the dead. 3.22, the Lord will raise you up a prophet. 3.26, God having raised up his servant. Resurrection, resurrection, resurrection. This is resurrection power which is occurring here. And it's meant to tell us, when we ask that question at the beginning, can the church carry out this impossible mission? Well, on their own, they can't. But the resurrection power by the name of Jesus is at work in and through the church by the Holy Spirit. That's what we see in this passage is going on. And honestly, it's the truth of that, which is what allows me to look at this story and say, yeah, I think it really happened. I think it is an actual event in recorded history. Because if you're out there and you say, I I still have trouble believing this, that's fine. But what you really have a problem with is not this story or maybe some of the other miracles in the Bible. Your problem is with the resurrection of Jesus. Because this is done by the authority of the resurrection of Jesus. And that's the miracle of all miracles. That's the one that all these other miracles depend on. What do you do with the resurrection of Jesus? If you really believe that Jesus raised from the dead, then this miracle is not a problem. Right? So what do you do with Jesus? I want to read for you a quote from a man named Sheldon Van Auken. He was an atheist who studied under C.S. Lewis, a great philosopher and Christian writer. And he was wrestling with that question of what do you do with Jesus in the resurrection? And this is what he has to say. Then came this chilling realization that I could not go back. In my old easygoing theism, I had regarded Christianity as a sort of fairy tale. And I had neither accepted nor rejected Jesus since I had never, in fact, encountered him. But now I had. The position was not as I had been comfortable thinking all these months, merely a question of whether I was to accept the Messiah or not. It was a question of whether I was to accept him or to reject him. My God, there was a gap behind me. Perhaps the leap to acceptance was a horrifying gamble. But what of the leap of rejection? There might be no certainty that Christ was God, but by God, there was no certainty that he was not. I love his honesty. And if you hear it there, as he's wrestling and he comes to the person of Jesus, it all hinges upon the resurrection. Did Jesus raise from the dead? And he says, it's a leap of faith to get there. That's what he's saying. But he says, but also, once you've encountered Jesus, it's not that you can just go on saying he's a nice guy. I mean, how many nice guys do you know that claim to be God, right? He's saying, no, you can't just go on saying he's a nice guy. You have to take that leap of faith to accept him, or you have to take a leap of faith and reject him. There is no middle ground with Jesus. It's acceptance or rejection. What do you do with Jesus? Because this leads to what Peter and his whole purpose is going on right here in, in, in giving of the miracle and then his sermon. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is alive and at work in the church today through the apostles by the Holy Spirit. That power is what is carrying the mission of the church forward. And if that's true, if that's true, maybe some of you wonder, Why don't we see miracles like this today? 
We can't answer all of that this morning, but maybe a couple of quick thoughts would be. Um, there's two dangers that come with miracles. First is to believe that they never happened at all. And the second is to believe that they happen all the time, right? You see, the purpose of this miracle wasn't to control or manipulate power and then have this healing, but rather it was to bring glory to God and to show that God was still at work amidst his church. That's why this miracle occurred. So everyone would look at this and say, how did this happen? Um, I think oftentimes that we look for something different in our miracles. We're going to touch on that more in a moment, but I want to ask you now a couple questions to kind of help us reflect here. First is, what do you do with Jesus? What is your response to the power of Jesus' name? And if someone were to ask you today, if you believed in the miracle of the resurrection, what would you say? What do you do with Jesus? And I'm going to argue that our text goes forward and that Peter um, moves forward and he tells us, what do we do with this powerful name of Jesus? So that's our second point. Uh, the, that just as the name of Jesus had power, so also the name of Jesus leads to repentance. The name of Jesus leads to repentance. You see, Peter goes on to condemn his audience. He says, you killed Jesus. You're responsible for his death, for killing the Son of God. And yet, the miracle that occurs here is that you can receive forgiveness. And that is the miracle that's going on. And he tells us to repent. If you look at verse 19, he says it right there. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. Now, repentance, that's another way of saying, of admitting that I'm going the wrong direction. I need to turn and submit myself to God by asking for his forgiveness. Repentance is saying, God, I'm not good enough on my own. I need your mercy and your grace, your righteousness that comes through Jesus. In a sense, repentance is what makes us right with God to acknowledge our sin and need for a Savior. And that's the miracle that's occurring. That's the greater miracle. Yes, the physical miracle of the man being able to walk, that's, that's important in our story, but it's to point forward to something even greater. And the greater miracle is that we can be reconciled to God. That is the miracle which is occurring. There's a couple things we need to understand about repentance. Um, first is that repentance isn't just a one-time act. It's not something that you do once and then you're done. Rather, it's something that occurs day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment. We are in constant need of repentance. But the other thing we need to know is that repentance is not simply vertical. People think of repentance as vertically between my relationship and with God, right? But repentance is also horizontal. Repentance affects, affects my relationships with myself and my neighbors, with you, right? And that is why we as a church must be known and must model repentance, both vertically and horizontally. Because sin not only affects my relationship with God, sin also affects my relationship with everyone I come into contact with. And even sometimes beyond that, sin is horizontal. This is hard for us to understand in our individualistic Western culture, but it's something their culture would have understood quite easily. And it's also something that we must understand. So let me give you this Maybe this example. Take, for example, the Me Too movement um, currently going on in our culture. 
This is a collection of brave individuals, most of whom are women, who are coming forward to speak of the horrors and atrocities of sexual harassment and assault that are occurring, right? And when we see something like this occurring, it's easy for us to look at the perpetrators, point the finger and say, that is awful. But good thing I don't do that, right? But yet what I would like to argue is that how many of us assume that what we do and what we look at behind closed doors has no effect on the people we come in contact with. I would say that what I do in secret impacts those around me. It affects how I view and treat other women. It affects how I view and treat my wife. It affects how my daughter will come up and be raised and have an understanding of how she should be viewed. It affects the young men who look to me and say that's how he treats women. Right? My sin is not just my own. My sin has horizontal effects on other people. We are all guilty. Our sin affects others. It is not individual. Sin is corporate. And that's why it's so important for us as a church, again, to be defined as a church that models repentance and forgiveness. So let me ask you, as you think about repentance, when was the last time you modeled repentance? Maybe you maybe modeled that repentance to your kids. I'm sorry. I was wrong. Will you forgive me? Right? When was the last time you apologized to your spouse? When was the last time you were at work and you admitted you were wrong to your coworkers and asked for forgiveness or to your supervisor or to your direct report? When was the last time you talked to your friends and asked them to forgive you for something that you had done wrong? You see, our sin does not just affect us. It affects those who are around us, and therefore our lives must be modeled by repentance. It's, an, it's a muscle that we have to exercise. And it's important because first and primost, primarily, primarily because it affects our relationship with God, right? My sin, I must model that repentance to, with my relationship with God, but secondarily because it affects not just my individual life, but the life of everyone I come into contact with. So this understanding of repentance is important for us to grasp because it brings us to Peter's third point. Repentance is possible through the power of Jesus' name, but the purpose of repentance is so that the name of Jesus might bring restoration. The name of Jesus brings restoration. You see, it doesn't just transform individual lives, repentance. Repentance transforms whole communities. It's not just individual, it's corporate. When repentance occurs in the life of individual believers, the community in which, the, in, in which, amidst which those believers are is able to flourish. Perhaps you've heard of this story um, from an old newspaper which released a, an article that said, what is wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton um, wrote back a response, and he says, dear sirs, I am. Yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. That's the attitude of someone who grasped the message of Jesus. You see, if each of us understood and learned to repent of our individual sin, it wouldn't just change individual lives, it would change the world. It's exactly what Peter says. Look with me at Acts 3, verse 20. Verse 19 said that we must repent so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Christ appointed to you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of the prophet long ago. God desires repentance so that times of refreshing and restoration of all things may come. 
Notice that emphasis on all things. God isn't merely concerned with their spiritual lives. He's concerned about all things. Repentance affects all of our life. Let me, uh, let me give you an, an illustration. If I were to purchase a home and live close with some of my neighbors, and then as I'm living there, I find out that my house has termites. And I decide I don't want to do anything about that problem. That not only affects the value of my home and the structure of my home, but if those termites spread, it affects my neighbors and possibly my entire neighborhood, right? My sin has effects on the entire neighborhood. Or maybe even to illustrate it a little further, let's just say that my house looks like a dump. And this is not meant for any of you to feel guilty about how your house looks right now. Um, but if, it, if it's looking terrible, there's no siding, the yard's torn up, not only does it depreciate the value of my own home, it lowers the value of the homes in the neighborhood, right? Individual sin, corporate effects. Individual repentance, corporate effects. That is what they're getting after right here. And even think about it with our miracle today, right? The lame man who was healed, walking again. Yes, that was a huge blessing, obviously. Having greater access to the temple, a huge blessing. But also a huge blessing is the fact that he's no longer dependent upon others. Rather, he can work and contribute for his own, for his own life and contribute to the lives of others. This is the his individual life now has flourishing for others. God's plan for the church is that we spread the message of Jesus's life, his death, and his resurrection through the power of his name for the purpose of individual repentance, which leads to corporate flourishing. That's what he has in mind here. That's actually what we see in Acts chapter 8. When Jesus says, you should be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He's saying, go about and bring individual repentance in people's lives so that the whole world may know. That's his plan A. So do you want to change the world? Start with the person in the mirror. Evaluate your own life. Have you encountered the risen Jesus? Have you repented of your sin? Do you then model that repentance throughout your daily life? so that relationships around you may flourish. Again, this is, how, this is how we as a church are supposed to act. Our work, whether paid or unpaid, modeling repentance brings about flourishing in the community around us. What an awesome thing that we get to be a part of, that God would use us to participate in the restoration of all things. And this is actually the conclusion of Peter's sermon. Verse 25 and 26, Peter says, In your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning each one of you from your wickedness. Right? Turning you from your wickedness, individual repentance, so that all the families of the earth may be blessed, corporate restoration. That is God's plan. The, by the power of the resurrection, the church, as we are meant to be, we are meant to be a blessing to the world around us by responding in repentance and restoration of all things. Let me say that one more time. By the power of Jesus' name, we the church are meant to be a blessing to the world around us by the way we repent and seek the restoration of all things. That's our work. Again, what an awesome privilege that we get to be a part of. And I want to uh, think about this awesome privilege. It's like, yes, that's exciting. But there's also this piece that feels a little bit overwhelming, Right? A little bit, the task is too big for us. And I'll give a reminder that, that we have the power of Jesus' name. But I also want to give voice to the fact that in our own lives, there is that sense of brokenness and that it's difficult to feel like we can, we can be used for God, right? 
Some of us, even earlier as we mentioned miracles, we have prayed and asked for God's miracle in our own life. I know that might be the story for some of you, whether it be someone in your family who is sick or something else. You've prayed and asked for that miracle and it hasn't come. And that's part of my story as well. And while I don't have a good answer for why those miracles, God doesn't always answer yes to our prayers and to those miracles, what I take comfort from in this passage and from other places in Scripture is that Jesus also prayed for a miracle. When he was in the garden before he died for our sins on the cross, he prayed to God, let there be another way. I don't want to die. And God told Jesus no so that God might say yes to us. And I just want to reflect on that for a moment and just say that while God did tell Jesus no, he says yes, he has said yes to us through the miracle of us being able to be restored to him through repentance by faith in his name. So I also want to say, let's look forward to the day when all things will be restored, when this miracle will take place, when Jesus will return, and all things will be as they should be. All wrongs will be made right. All tears will be wiped away. It is to the restoration of all things that we look and we place our hope in Jesus. So let's look forward to that day as we strive to be people who are known, as repent, known by our repentance and that we seek the restoration of all things. Let's pray. Father, I do just confess my own brokenness. And Lord, I look at the miracle that I can be restored to relationship with you. Lord, praise be to you. Thank you to Jesus who's made that possible. Lord, I pray that we would be a church that is known that through the power of your name, that we are known by our repentance and that we seek the restoration of all things. Thank you for including us in this task. Lord, may we, may we go forward with that in mind. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. I, I know it is, it is sometimes hard for us to see the connection between our, our own individual brokenness and the brokenness we see in the world. Uh, but, but we have to recognize, as, as Jonathan mentioned, that, that when we see God's plan of redemption and restoration of all things, it begins with the repentance of individuals that creates a culture of repentance in our world. Uh, and it reminds me, there's this anonymous quote that, uh, that, you know, everybody wants a revolution, but nobody wants to do the dishes. It's just this recognition, we all want to see change in the world, but, but we aren't willing to do the things and the small things in life that bring about that change. And so hopefully that has been an encouragement and challenge to you. As we go from being the church gathered in this place to being the church scattered in the places God has called us, hear these words as we leave. Brothers and sisters, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Amen. Go in peace. Have a great week.